welcome, welcome, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. You came to church the week after Easter. I mean, there's double credit for just a regular Sunday. Take your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We recently got a new car, or, or at least new to us, and it is a truck, so I'm a man now. So it's just great. I just waited all these years, finally a man. But it was time for us to get a new vehicle because we were driving a very old SUV and it had uh, 200,000 miles on it. And the only thing that worked about it was its ability to move you from point A to point B. That was it. Uh, Like nothing really worked on the inside, like the electric windows. Um, You know, they just would fall straight down into the door. I don't know if you've had this phenomenon happen to you. It's very annoying. I'd already fixed one before. The car's not worth that much. I'm like, I'm not fixing the other. So I did what any sane, rational person from Missouri would do. I took the panel off the door, stuck a couple two-by-fours in there to hold up the window, then put the panel back so it looks nice on the outside. Total trash on the inside, but nobody knew, and that's all that mattered. The air conditioner didn't work either. Well, it worked, but not properly because on the, you know, in the summer it blew out hot air and in the winter it would only blew out cold air, but only on my side. It was one of those dual things. So Amanda, highly blessed and favored by God, worked perfectly. My side, no, it was a disaster. And so this winter was kind of cold, you know, I mean, it was cold. I mean, it was Houston cold. So if you're from somewhere else, I get it, not cold, but here it was kind of cold. And so I just took the vents out and shoved socks into them on my side so that the warm air could blow out on her side and the cold air or, you know, would not blow out on, on my side. And then the, I could live with that because that's all interior, you know. And, uh, but about six months ago or so, any time that you would put the gas pedal down to accelerate, there was this awesome squeak noise like... And it only did it for like half the day. So if you were driving at night, totally fine. But I dropped Jackson off at school in the morning time. And he's eight. So he's not totally self-conscious yet. But like we're on our way there. And you have to pull him like right up to the school with all these people around. And I could feel his embarrassment. He never said anything because he's a good boy. But I could feel his embarrassment as we would roll up. A door opens and here comes Jackson out. You know, he runs up to the door. I'm sure that's not to get to the school. That is to get away from the car. And, and so it was just time. It, it was just time. In fact, after we got the new car, one of our neighbors was coming over and admiring it and doing all that thing, you know, that you're, it means you're a good neighbor. And uh, she said, uh, yeah, I mean, I could tell it was time to get a new car because every time that Curtis would drop Jackson off at school, we could hear him coming. <laughs> But it had just become a problem. You know, it, it was, you could ignore it, ignore it, ignore it, put it off, push it off. But then it was just, it become a problem. What was the last thing in your life where you just looked at someone and said, this has become a problem? We tried to ignore it. We tried to make it like it wasn't a big deal, but it is a problem. If you read the Bible from beginning to end, you will see that one problem gets lifted up above all the other problems. In fact, most of the other problems in the scripture really start with this one problem, and that is the problem of sin. In fact, death, the thing that we hate so much, is a fruit from sin, is a result from sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. One problem lifted up above all other problems problems. And and we see this. This causes, sin causes problems with God. It has permanently fractured our relationship with God. It fractures our relationships with other people. 
You ever get in to clean up a mess, but then you end up making a bigger mess out of things? Sin is introduced into our relationships. It causes problems. So you have sin. I have sin. This is not a judgmental message. It's just a reality message. So how are we going to fix our problem? And I don't want us just thinking eternally. Not just how we're going to fix our eternal sin problem, but how are we going to fix our Tuesday sin problem? Our Thursday sin problem? Well, a lot of people just ignore it. Minimize it, downplay it, or, or say, well, that's not, that's not sin. That's just my moral choice. You call that sin. I just call that freedom of will. Other people come up with a strategy, some steps, some rules. I'm, I'm going to follow all these rules. I'm always going to do this. I'm never going to do this. And this is going to restrain all that moral tension inside of me. And we're at church, and so some people are going to say, well, Jesus is the answer to a sin problem. And what we find in Colossians, when you read it, is that the Colossian church was trying to do all three. They were trying to ignore their sin, or at least downplay it, like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. They were creating a whole system to deal with it, and they were adding Jesus into the mix. So they took all three of these things, ignoring rules and Jesus, and were putting them all together. And that's what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in the last half of chapter 2. He's speaking right to this issue. And this is what he says in verse 23, Colossians chapter 2. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So what Paul is talking about here, and he's diagnosing this problem of legalism in this church. Say that word with me, legalism. Now, legalism is not a word that you can find in the Bible, but you can find its idea over and over and over again, specifically in the New Testament. Legalism is instead of trusting Jesus to deal with our sin problem, not just eternally, but daily, we turn to a system of rules which we self-inflict on ourselves. So we, we come up with a legal system. Laws and rules by which we will live by to deal with our Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday sin problem. We create a legal system to follow. Uh, If I was ever going to write a book or at least a chapter in a book would be called My Adventures in Legalism because I'm fantastic at it. Uh, It's not something that you should be good at, but I am great at it, especially when I was a little bit younger. I grew up in a church that was very black and white, and uh, there were some issues that were very black and white. For example, if you were serious about Jesus, then you should only listen to Jesus-inspired music, right? So if you're serious about Jesus, you can't listen to regular music, only like music created for Jesus, to Jesus, has Jesus' name mentioned in it somewhere, like that is the good thing. Um, If you're serious about Jesus, now if you hate Jesus, you can by all means listen to whatever you want. But if you're serious about him, none of this other regular music... So then I met Amanda, and I was serious about her, and she was serious about Jesus, and I was serious about Jesus. We had this nice little triangle thing going, but she was also serious about NSYNC. <laughs> so, this weird NSYNC was messing up our triangle flow of serious about Jesus, serious about each other. So, but what could I do? Man, I'm the boyfriend. In fact, I'm the new boyfriend. So, like, I got no, like, platform to, you know, have any influence there. So I do what every legalist person does when they don't have a platform. I just judged her silently. 
And eventually I wore her down where she threw away her instinct. Now, she did want me to tell you that years later, I apparently changed the rules and started listening to regular music, but I didn't tell her until much later. That's something that she accuses me with. I'm not sure that that's true, but to be fair to her, that, that's, I told her I, I would say that to you. But, I, you know, I'm a moron. So it's a wonder that she didn't break up with me because who does that? Who says, you know, you're serious about Jesus, you only listen to these kinds of things. But it wasn't just music. It, it was everything. Like, I grew up in this church where you, you went to church a lot. You went Sunday morning, and then you went Sunday night for, to a whole different service. So different sermon, different songs, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and then Wednesday night to the prayer meeting slash Bible study slash youth meeting, whatever was going on, you were there because if you were serious about Jesus. Now, if you were eh, towards Jesus, you could just sit at home and watch TV. But imagine that. Imagine going three times a week to prove that you're serious about Jesus. We don't do that here. So I want you to, to go home today and at six o'clock tonight, whatever you're doing, just go, oh, I don't have to be at church tonight. See, that would be a blessing. But we had to be there if you're serious about Jesus. So fast forward, Amanda and I are engaged now. So she didn't break up with me about the NSYNC thing, although she should have. We're engaged now. We, I'm working at this church. We've been doing a youth retreat for high school students all weekend long, all day Friday, working hard, all day Saturday, working hard. We're coming back into Houston late on Saturday night. Amanda's still in college in a different town. She's got to go back to college the next day. She says these words to me, I think tomorrow I'm going to sleep in and go to church at night back in my college town. Now you have to remember, there's like what my brain is telling me, and then there's like all this stuff that's in me from my upbringing, right? And in my upbringing, like, you don't skip Sunday morning. Like, you just, mm, that's a no-no. Like, that is the Super Bowl of Jesus. Like, on, <laughs> on Sunday morning, like, you do not skip that. And so, you know, she kind of felt that. She's like, no, 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 no. My church in my college town, it's the same. Same sermon as on Sunday morning at 9.15 at 11 o'clock is the same one at 6 o'clock. It's the same songs. Everything's the same. But I'm like, the Super Bowl, man, you can't skip the Super Bowl. Huge fight. Turns out I'm wrong. Definitely wrong. Always wrong. I'm a moron. She married me anyway, right? <laughs> This is legalism. This is a self-inflicted set of rules and guidelines. Self-imposed religion. I mean, isn't it crazy that many of us are living by a standard that not even Jesus himself would ask us to live by? And that's what he's talking about in verse 23. When it says, these matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom. See, that's the thing about legalism. It's, it's hard to tell what's legalistic and, and what's good. Because on the surface, it looks the same. But under the surface, there's something ugly there. If you jump back up to verse 18, he's going to show you some of this ugliness. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. So that was always also going on there in this church. Taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So the Apostle Paul is saying someone who is legalistic, someone who lives by a set of self-imposed rules that not even Jesus asked him to live by is inflated. Because that's what happens. Your faith gets mixed with your pride and legalism comes out. And when legalism comes out, when you impose a set of laws that you will live by, 
you cannot help but to impose those same laws on people around you. And then you start to compare. But it's not fair to them because they didn't know that they had to live by your set of self-imposed rules. Because legalism does not really exist without comparison. I would guess that if you were the only person on the planet and you had Jesus and you had the word of God, you had prayer, that you would not be legalistic. It's when you introduce other people into the mix that legalism thrives. When you start measuring yourself, do I measure up to this person? Am I more godly than this person? Well, how do you measure something like that? Well, what kind of music do they listen to? What kind of television shows do they watch? How often do they go to church? Legalism thrives in a system of comparison. That's what he's talking about in verse 18 when he says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. That phrase, defrauding you, it's the same idea of an umpire in baseball calling someone out. Saying, you're out, you're disqualified. What Paul is saying is, listen, you don't let anybody on planet earth decide if you are in or out on the people of God. You don't let anyone on planet earth decide if you are accepted by God or not accepted by God. That's for Jesus alone to judge, not people who are around us. Because legalism is contagious. It's contagious. Because again, your faith mixes with your pride and none of us want to fail, especially when it comes to something as important as this. So when one person is living by one set of standards and it makes us look bad because we are not, what is our natural reaction? Well, then I also have to live by that set of standards. And so legalism spreads like a disease. And it's unknown and it's under the surface because how can you tell? Because sometimes it's hard to discern what is just godly and good and what is legalism. But Paul's not arguing here for carelessness. He's not just saying like, hey, don't be legalistic, so just do whatever you want. No, you read Colossians. You read any of the writings of the Scripture. The Scripture is asking us through, through the Holy Spirit to put our sin to death to put off sin, to to do away with it. You know, many of us will gravitate toward one extreme or the other, legalism or laziness. We're either living by a very strict and high standard of of rules and laws that we self-impose, or we're just doing whatever we want. If If in this room you are the most careful about your faith, as you are at any time during the week, then something is wrong. I would guess that you're living carelessly. So it's not carelessness that he's arguing for. But he's he's encouraging us to not get distracted and not try to fix our problem with rules and laws. Look back at verse 23. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement. Now, I know that you're using that word all the time in your normal vocabulary, self-abasement. But if you are a simpleton like me and you needed to look it up, self-abasement is hating yourself into humility. It's false humility that's brought on by a low view of yourself. Now, some of us who are on the spectrum of super prideful, we may think, well, I I, I don't hate myself. But self-hatred comes in a lot of different forms and it's very, very deceptive. Because what self-hatred does with self-abasement, it's saying, I'm going to prove that I'm acceptable to God 
by just thinking really bad about myself. God is so good. God is so holy. Jesus is awesome. I don't deserve any of this. So to prove to God that I know this, I'm just going to think really, really, really poorly of myself. Self-hatred, it comes in some sneaky forms. Like one form is just perpetuating hate-filled talk to yourself. We entertain thoughts about ourselves that you would never say out loud to another person. I mean, can you imagine going into a store in the mall and somebody's trying something on, they're looking in the mirror there and kind of checking it out and how's everything working and you're just going up to me, hey, can I I talk to you just a second? I got something on my heart I want to tell you. You are incredibly ugly. Just hideous. Really, you should be embarrassed to be alive. No, you would never do that. Why? Because you're a decent person. And yet I promise you, most of us have said those things about ourselves. I mean, would you go to a a guy in your office who went for the big sale and and he did everything right and for whatever reason, just something didn't work out in corporate this and it fell away. Would you go into that guy's cubicle after he gets the email that the deal didn't go through? And hey, man, dude, I just want you to know you're terrible at your job. Awful. I mean, they're probably going to fire you and then you're going to lose your job and then you're going to be homeless. It's going to be a disaster and it's all your fault. No, you would never do that. I promise you, every man in this room has descended into that circle. We say things to ourselves that we would never say to anyone else. It's a self-abasement. It's I'm going to make myself feel so low because that's where I deserve to be. But God made you in his image. And yes, we are broken with sin. And if I just did whatever I wanted, when I wanted, how I wanted, it would be very, very, very ugly. But we are made in the image of God. We are accepted as sons and daughters. So don't perpetuate talk to yourself that you would not use for someone else. Self-hatred also comes in the form of not being able to rebound after you make a mistake. You know, it's like Peter, the disciple, lead disciple, denies Jesus three times. You remember this story? Jesus is resurrected. Even though Peter has betrayed him horribly, Jesus rebuilds him and restores him three times in the same number of times that Peter had denied. And and yet some of us are willing to believe that Peter was restored after doing what he did, but we are not able to be restored after doing what we would do. That's just a form of of self-abasement, of self-hatred. It also comes out in raging insecurity. If you want to know if you have raging insecurity, if you've ever looked at somebody across the room and, and they're talking, and if you've ever wondered, I wonder if they're talking about me, They're not, and you have raging insecurity. And if you wonder, like, maybe they are talking about me, then just do what I do and just walk over there and go, hey, are you talking about me? You know what they're going to say? No. And then you're going to feel embarrassed, and you'll never do it again. So it just fixes the problem there. But raging insecurity. No one likes me. No one believes in me. Everyone hates me. Conspiracy against me. It's all a form of of self-hatred, which comes from a very low view of yourself. And then there's on the opposite end of this extreme. Self-hatred can come out in, um, in the need to be successful. 
driven towards success. Because we think, if I don't do this, then I am worthless. I am worthless if fill in the blank. If I don't make this amount of money this year, if I don't get this amount of sales, if my kids are not the first in their class, if my kids bring home a C, then I am worthless. Driven for success comes from a low view of ourselves. And it's no wonder that this kind of view of ourselves comes in the environment of legalism because we're trying to live up to a standard that the Holy Spirit is not willing to empower us to live up to because we're living up to a standard that Jesus himself has not asked us to live up to. So the standard of religion and legalism that we set for ourselves, you are not able to attain. And when you do not attain that level, there is only one person to blame and that's you. And so you think less of yourself, but you try again and you think less of yourself and you try again, you fail again, you think less of yourself. And we end up with this very, very low view of ourselves, and we end up like the Colossians, self-made religion and self-abasement, low view of ourselves. I want you to imagine with me as we finish today, this continuum, right? And, and right here in this spot, this is the sweet spot with you and God. This is where you feel alive to God. This is where you feel accepted by God. This is where when you pray, man, prayers are really happening. When you read the scripture, it's jumping off the page. Man, when you invite somebody to church, they actually come in. This is the sweet spot where you feel alive. It's good to be here. And, and there's a continuum. So on the other end, way down here, this is where all the wicked people hang out, the evildoers, those who are not serious about Jesus. And we want to be in this place for a lot of reasons. Like this week, I was fishing for compliments from my daughter, Annabeth. She's five. And, and so we're just hanging out of the house. And I'm like, Annabeth, do you, do you, uh, do you think I'm the best daddy in the whole world? I, I put it in simple yes or no questions. Um, and she goes, yes. I'm like, okay, good. And I'm like, do you love me? How much do you love me? Yeah, I love you, daddy. You're, you're great. Do you like me? Because I don't want you to just love me. I want you to like me. Yes, Daddy, I, I like you. And I should have just left it right there. Right? But I did not because I was fishing. And so I said, Annabeth, why do you like Daddy? Why do you love Daddy? She didn't hesitate. She said, because I have to. <laughs> not the answer I was looking for. But this sweet spot, all of us instinctively know, this is where we have to be. We have to be in this place. We have to because we feel like this is what God expects of us. We have to because this is what we expect of ourselves. We have to because this is where it's good. This is where this whole thing really makes sense. Alive to God, hungry for God, connected to God, accepted by God. Man, this is hungry. So this is good. We want to stay here. So we try to fence ourselves in. So we think in those seasons, man, what, what am I doing in those seasons that put me in this sweet spot? Well, I'm sharing my testimony with everybody, sharing the good things that Jesus has done in my life. And so maybe there's a connection between that and this sweet spot. And so I'm going to build a fence. And the fence is at least once a week, I'm going to invite somebody to church. I'm going to give my testimony. I'm going to tell them what God has done in my life at least once a week. And now I got this fence to keep me in this sweet spot. Well, what else I was doing? I was reading the scripture a bunch, man, and just a bunch. I was hungry for it. It was real. So I'm going to read the scripture at least 30 minutes a day because I'm going to be realistic. I'll probably end up doing an hour a day because in the sweet spot, I love it. You can't pull me away from it. But just as a minimum, just because I'm creating some rules, 30 minutes a day, every day, reading the scripture. I'm fencing myself in. And also during that sweet spot that I remember, I wasn't 
I wasn't letting a lot of garbage in my life. And so no R-rated movies for me, not ever, no exception, no R-rated movies for me. I'm building a fence. So I got the testimony. I've got the word. I've got guard in my life with no R-rated movies. And I was praying a bunch. So I'm going to pray at least an hour a day because when I start praying in the sweet spot, man, it's just fresh and it's real. And uh, just every, just everything is prayer. So at least an hour a day. I got to do, now look, I'm all fenced in and now I'm going to stay in the sweet spot where I always feel alive to God, where I'm always accepted by God. But listen, I I know from personal experience, man, these fences, they fall down real easy. Real easy. Because I woke up late. I had to get the kids to school, and then I had to go to work, and then... It was a long day of work, and then I had to commute home, and then it was time for dinner, and then it was bedtime routine, and then it was, and my 30 minutes a day was zero minutes a day, and that fence fell down. And listen, if you try to fence yourself in, when the walls of your fence fall down, you, you don't just take one step away from the sweet spot. It feels like you go all the way back to the beginning where God is not pleased with you and God does not accept you and you are not alive to God. And then we have to begin the long ascent back to the sweet spot, trying to earn it back little bit by little bit. And it takes different times depending on if you did a little thing in your mind. Maybe you say, God, forgive me. I'm so sorry. And an hour later, man, you're back to the sweet spot. But if you if you broke one of those fences where, where you had broken it before and so you tried to put up like 50 of those fences and they all came tumbling down, then it will take weeks and months of not doing that thing before you feel like you're back alive to God and accepted by God. I mean, here's the bad news for us. None of us can stand in the sweet spot. But Jesus can. And Jesus does, always. Always accepted by God. Always holy before God. Always alive to God. We can. We can choose to spend our life trying, pretending that we can, getting here, feeling good, messing up, going back to the beginning, working our way back up, being here, feeling good, messing up, going back to the beginning. Or we can just acknowledge that we can't ever stay there. We can't linger there, but we're not asked to. That's the good news about verse 19. Paul's jumping into the middle of this idea of being able to fix our problem with sin by our rules and our strategies and our laws and our fences. And he says this, and not holding fast to the head. So they've they've not been holding fast to the head. And who's the head? Back to chapter 1, verse 18. He, Jesus, is also the head of the body. So we're talking about Jesus here. And not holding fast to Jesus from whom the entire body being supplied. You want to feel alive to God? Hold fast to Jesus and held together by joints and ligaments. You feel like you can't restrain yourself enough? You can't unless you hold fast to Jesus and grows with the growth which is from God. So the good news is we can't stand in this sweet spot 
it's unrealistic. But Jesus does and always does, and he has given us permission to hold fast to him. So just ask yourself one question today. I don't care what this week was like for you. I don't care if you've never been to church. I don't care if you've been a bunch of times, but you're not really sure what you believe or whatever, or if you were incredibly wicked and sinful and deserve to be on the other end of the spectrum. Are you today at this moment with Jesus? If you are, then you are in the sweet spot. You are accepted by God. You are alive to God. And you're like, no, no, you don't know me. No, no. It doesn't matter. You hold fast to Jesus. And you are alive. And you are accepted. And you are holy. There's none of this typewriter thing where we work our way up, back down, and work our way up. That is self-imposed religion which Jesus has not purchased for you. Easter is about his purchasing your ability to stand with him, accepted by God, holy before God, loved by God. So are you with Christ today? Because this faith stuff that we're reading about has very little to to do with what you do and has everything to do with who you are with. Are you with Jesus? Then you're right where you need to be. So hold fast to him. And holding fast to him may mean reading the scripture. In fact, it definitely does. And holding fast to Jesus may mean praying. It definitely does. And holding fast to Jesus does mean sharing your testimony. And I think holding fast to Jesus may mean don't go see R-rated movies. I mean, I just think it's a good idea for you in general to not see another person naked that you are not married to. You don't need to come up to me afterwards and go, well, here are the four R-rated movies that don't have any naked people in it. I think you get my point. (laughs) But now these things are not fences to keep me in this space of being alive and accepted by God. They're just part of being alive and accepted by God and holding fast to Jesus. So today is a day of freedom. Many of us just need to go ahead and knock down our fences, not with failure, but just because we don't need fences, because we have Jesus. We need to stop trying to enforce and restrain our own sin through rules and laws and always and never. And just start being people who cling hold fast to Christ because faith is not about what you do it's about who you're with and we're with Jesus let's pray God I pray you would you would show us where our fences are that we've built to try to keep us in this place of favor with you In fact, why don't you just ask the Holy Spirit to just search your mind and heart, your life. Where have you built fences, unnecessary fences? God, we turn our back on these fences as being able to do anything for us in our standing with you, favor from you. Jesus, we trust you. We don't trust a set of rules or laws. We trust in you. 
fix our problem with sin, both eternally and on a Tuesday. So set us free today. Give us room to run. I pray that for those of us who have been bound up with self-imposed religion, today would be a day of freedom. We'd be free not to carelessness, but free to hold fast to what matters most. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand to your feet? We're gonna...